Baptism Sunday is coming, November 21st. That is a Sunday preceding Thanksgiving. And classes will begin on the 31st of October. They run for three weeks. So if you are interested in baptism, we encourage you to sign up. Let me say it this way. Let me uh, exhort you and implore you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have not been baptized, then I would exhort you to do so. You can sign up for the baptism class to learn more of what is involved and what that's all about at our Welcome Center, on our website, or even on the new app. It's actually super easy. It's about six, uh, three clicks. You click on the app. Baptism is one of the first things that's going to come up. You click on that again, and you can sign up for the class. So if you've not taken that step if you're in your walk with the Lord, I would encourage you to do so. There are two symbols of, of rites that Christ commanded us to do. One is to take his body and his blood symbolically in the bread and the cup frequently together to remember the manner of his death to purchase our salvation. The second is baptism. Baptism does not save us. It does not get, grant us the forgiveness of sins. Baptism is an outward demonstration of what has already taken place in our hearts. As we enter the waters of baptism, we likewise enter, uh, go with Christ into death symbolically. And as we come out of the waters of baptism, it symbolizes the new life we have in Jesus. And so you'll learn that and much more if baptism is new to you. Uh, we'd encourage you to do that. Yes, I am belaboring the point. Uh, one other thing I want to share, uh, just say this morning before we dive into our message, pun intended, coming right out of uh, baptism there, is uh, I just, some of you are catching on. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for your kind uh, gestures and condolences uh, to our family, to my wife, my father-in-law, Doug, uh, and myself and our family, the loss of uh, my mother-in-law, Phoebe, this past week. Uh, Phoebe was a, a dear person, a wonderful woman of God, and we are looking forward to uh, celebrating her life and, and just sharing more of who she, who she was this week. Uh, we believe that she is with the Lord. We rejoice in that, and we're just grateful for what it means that when, when we enter a season of grief, what it means to be part of a church family. And so thank you so much for uh, all of your kind words and, and gestures of, of kindness. Well, this morning we are beginning the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible and of the, New, the Old Testament. Uh, we're beginning our exposition, our study of this book in earnest today. If you were not here a week ago, we introduced and kind of, kind of surveyed uh, the book of Deuteronomy together. Um, our associate pastor, Zach Stevens, and myself did that together. It was a lot of fun to do, do it that way. And I would encourage you to go back and watch that on YouTube if you didn't have the opportunity to do so. But this morning, we are in Deuteronomy chapter 1. We're going to begin looking uh, just at detail of what, what does God have to say to us from this ancient text? What, how is it relevant to our lives today? And you may remember if you were with us last week, we said Deuteronomy thematically presents this idea of, of God that gives us a framework of love for a flourishing people. That's sort of for all the visual learners in the room, that's how we're going to remember the theme of what Deuteronomy is. And it does indeed present a structure of God's love to his people. We also noted that that structure mirrors the Near Eastern vassal treaties of the Hittites of the time. And so it has a preamble. It has a historical prologue, stipulations of the covenant, and so on. Over the next six weeks or so, we're going to be uh, focused exclusively on the historical prologue as Moses kind of looks back with Israel and recounts their history. Uh, matter of fact, Israel at this point, are, they are poised on the plains of Moab. They've just conquered the Amorite kings, and they're about to enter the Promised Land, but it's not the first time. These people, as we begin the book of Deuteronomy, they're gathered there, are the second generation who came out of Egypt. 
And so what Moses does is he walks back the first time. Remember when we were here last time in your parents' generation, what happened? And so that's what we're looking at this morning is Moses kind of walking his people, the second generation, back through the failures, the missed opportunity uh, of the previous generation. And we'll see why as we get, as we get into the text. And you'll note that uh, I'm just going to kind of quickly gloss through the first several verses. We're going to pick it up in detail in, in verse 24. You'll note that, that uh, God's people Israel had been in Sinai. If we could throw the map up here, you'll see on uh, the very bottom sort of center is Sinai or Mount Horeb where Moses was given the law and the Ten Commandments. And then God essentially says, okay, you've been there long enough. Go north to Kadesh Barnea to the outskirts of the promised land. And verse 8 says, enter and take possession of the good land the Lord has given you as fulfillment of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the first sections of the, of the chapter, of chapter 1, sort of chronicle that journey. Noting that it's an 11-day journey. But as the people get to the promised land, what do they do? They say, kind of say, alright, time out. Let's send up 12 spies into the promised land to kind of survey it, look it over, and come back and bring our report as to what we're up against, what's really there, so we can be thoroughly aware of the situation. So Deuteronomy, as we said last week, is sort of an interruption between Numbers and the book of Joshua, where Moses recounts this history that his people might learn from it. So let's pick up the text in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 24. The spies have been commissioned, they're sent out, and the text says this, they, that is the 12 spies, left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol, scout, scouting the land. They took some of the fruit from the land in their hands, carried it down to us, and brought us back a report. The land the Lord our God is giving us is good. So things start out well. But, Moses writes, but you were not willing to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord brought us out of the land of Egypt to hand us over to the Amorites in order to destroy us because he hates us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made us lose heart, saying, The people are larger and taller than we are. The cities are large and are fortified to the heavens. We also saw the descendants of the Anakim there. So I said to you, don't be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will fight for you just as you saw him do for you in Egypt and as you saw in the wilderness how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all along the way you traveled until you reached this place. But in spite of this, you did not trust the Lord your God who went before you on the journey to seek out a place for you to camp. He went in the fire by night and in the cloud by day to guide you in the road you were to travel. When the Lord heard your words, he grew angry and swore an oath. None of these men in this evil generation will see the good land I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land on which he has set foot, because he remained loyal to the Lord. The Lord was angry with me also, this is Moses talking, because of you, and said, you will not enter there either. Joshua, son of Nun, who attends you, will enter it. Encourage him, for he will enable Israel to inherit it. Your children, whom you said would be plunder, your sons who don't know yet the good from evil, will enter there. I will give them the land, and they will take possession of it. But you are to turn back and head for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. Let's pray together as we open God's word. Lord, we approach this text of Scripture this morning knowing that we need a, a measure of humility 
to understand not only what was happening amongst your people at this time, but what it means for us today and how to apply this to our lives today. And so, Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, speak to us? God, would you help us to uh, push aside the distractions of the week past and the week coming to really hear from you? Give us tender hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we see this morning in this text of Deuteronomy and in the title of our message that what we're dealing with is the idea of missed opportunities, that God brings his people, Israel, to the, to the threshold of the promised land, and they ultimately blow it and miss the opportunity to enjoy all that he has promised and given them. And perhaps the, the analog for us are missed opportunities in our own lives, things that God calls us to that we ultimately uh, shirk from doing or, or respond with disobedience. It might be that God has compelled and convicted you as you read his word to be stewards of your finances, to be generous with your money in the things that God is doing, not only in the local church, but around the world and in the kingdom. But you ultimately make the choice to spend on yourself and your pleasures and your comforts. And only you know that. The scripture would say there's missed opportunity there for the great blessing of God. Or maybe it's that you've been compelled and convicted to honor God Uh, in your sexuality, to honor a biblical sexual ethic, in fidelity, whether you're single or married, but to follow God's principles in that area of life. And yet you ultimately have made choices to step away from being obedient to that call, to what you know is right. Or perhaps it's something a little more subtle that in your relationships with your coworkers or people that oversee you who are challenging and difficult, Or maybe it's the online responses to the threads that you see and the conversations online that you know that God would have you and and leads you to behave a certain way, to represent him well to the world. And yet you respond in the flesh. You respond in anger. You respond in a way that does not shine the light of Christ. Maybe a little bit more explicitly, God has really convicted you to share the love of Jesus with that neighbor, that friend, that coworker, and out of just fear, You've just responded with disobedience. You see, this morning we're talking about missed opportunities. I'll tell you that this message could be a little bit of a downer. Because I think based on what Moses is doing with his people, we want to kind of hang there. We want to marinate in recognizing why is he reviewing this history the way that he is. But I will tell you this. This message is not without hope. Not only because of where Moses goes, but because of the gospel itself. And as we said last week, because we look in Deuteronomy to see Jesus on every page. And we will indeed. And so we're going to endeavor this morning to do three things. To look at the reasons for our rebellion as we look at Israel's rebellion. To see the exhortations of Moses for three ways in which God is faithful to his people and ultimately faithful to us. And finally, as we consider our response to obey or disobey, We'll look at three legacies of being on the edge of the land of promise that we can learn from the people of Israel. So let's dive right into these nine things. The first is this sort of reasons for rebellion. Why does Israel do what they do? Why do they respond with a lack of faith, sending in spies, and ultimately completely disobeying the Lord? Well, the first reason is fear. It's fear. We see it in verse Uh, Verse 28, they say, the people are larger and taller than we are. They bring back this report, the ten spies, they kind of stir up the people and they say, Moses, you don't get it. These people, they're all linebackers and we're like hobbits compared to them. Which is kind of an interesting visual to think of a battle between hobbits and a bunch of linebackers, but whatever the case. But they're afraid. 
they're looking, and you'll see that they're consumed with the idea of size here. And their idea, they're consumed with an idea of size when God has said of, in chapter 7 that we peeked ahead last week, that he didn't choose Israel because of their size. In fact, that they're the smallest of all nations. He chooses them because he loves them. We'll come to that in a few weeks. First reason is fear. And I think we do the same thing at times. We'll apply this a little more thoroughly later. Second reason is hyperbole. They move sort of progressively, if you will, in their, in their argument for why they shouldn't go in to the place of God's promise by fear. And then they move to hyperbole. They say, the people are big. The cities are large too. In fact, they're fortified to the heavens. They're fortified in a way that they are insurmountable, impregnable. We couldn't possibly scale these walls or penetrate these walls. There's no way, Moses. As Zach helped us to understand last week, one of the themes of Deuteronomy is that the people ultimately believe that God is not big enough. Not just they don't think that they're big enough, but that he is not big enough. As we'll see, it it is fundamentally a distrust in him and what he's told them to do. The third response or, uh, or reason for rebellion, I've entitled hysteria. And I'll admit, I'm not sure if it's the best word, but I think there's a measure of something like that when they respond with, and the descendants of the Anakim are there as well. So, so the people are big and tall, the cities are big and tall, they're fortified to the heavens, and the Anakim are there. But why is this hysteria? For the Bible students in the room, this is where we're going to have a little bit of fun and we're going to kind of move into a little bit of a a tangential deep dive into the idea of who are the Anakim. Now we know from Genesis they're the descendants of someone named Anak who was the descendant of Arad and that they're a particularly physically large group of people, uh, meaning height-wise, eight, nine feet tall, et cetera, et cetera. But there's more. The parallel passages to what we're looking at in early Deuteronomy is, is in the book of Numbers, and specifically Numbers chapters 11 through 23. In Numbers uh, chapter 13, verse 28, we get almost exactly what we read here. The sons of Anak are there. But then, in the text in Numbers 13, Caleb, one of the two spies who believes that the people should take possession of the land, he pushes back, and he says, listen, let's not disobey the Lord. We can do this with him. I'm paraphrasing here. And what do the people respond? In verse 33, they say this. They double down. They, they go further. They say, we even saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. To ourselves, we seem like grasshoppers, and we must have seen the same to them. Again, there's an issue and a concern of size and being overmatched, but I believe that there's much more than that at work here. And so the question we're going to ask tangentially this morning, we'll come back to this idea of hysteria, is who are the Nephilim and the Anakites? Well, the first place we read about them is actually in Genesis chapter 6, right before the flood of Noah. Genesis 6-4 says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, so before and after the flood. When the sons of God went to the daughters of humans or daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, the men of renown. And so the people come back from spying out the land. The spies come back and they say, we saw the sons of Anakim there. And when Caleb pushes back, they say, no, no, they're descended from the Nephilim. We have a problem. And they're, they're basically hysterical. So who were the Nephilim? Who were the sons of Anak? And, uh, and, and what does that have, what's its relevance uh, to this text? Well, the, the Genesis text says that they were the heroes of old, the men of renown. And I want to give you four reasons this morning. And I will tell you that we're kind of endeavoring into a little bit of speculative theology here. 
In other words, we're going to look at what the scripture says about them, and then we're going to speculate as to why I think that the Israelites, that this is sort of uh, the next level of their fear in hysteria here. So we'll hopefully make all these connections. So I'm going to give you the traditional teaching is this, is that angels, fallen angels, demons if you will, came to earth, and intermarried or impregnated human women and bore a race of basically uh, angelic half-breed superhumans. That's the traditional teaching. Now, in ancient literature, in other ancient literature, there, there does seem to be uh, some legends and so forth about people of extraordinary physical means and stature and so on and so forth. We certainly have Goliath in the Old Testament. But I'm going to make the case biblically this morning, and I think it's sound, for, with four points that the reason, four reasons that the Nephilim are not angelic supermen, but are infamous or, no, or notorious sinners and rebels against God. In other words, they're rebels on a whole other level, at, at the next level, if you will. So let's look at our four reasons. First, Genesis says that they're the heroes of old, the men of renown. Now, when we think of the idea of heroes and men of renown, uh, the renowned particularly, you probably, like me, think of uh, the idea of, like, esteem or honor or, or someone that is worthy of awe and so on and so forth. In a certain sense, I think that's true. But when you look at the other biblical texts that use this exact phrasing in the original language, specifically number 16 and in Ezekiel 23, in both of those other cases, these lists of people are people of no notorious and insidious and dastardly levels of sin, idolatry, and rebellion against God. You can look at that uh, on your own uh, after for the sake of time this morning. So men of renown does not necessarily mean men who are wonderful, but in fact, men who are, perhaps a better word would be infamous, or, or uh, men of infamy. Second point, the Hebrew for the word Nephilim comes, is derived from the verb to fall or to fall from. And as a matter of fact, this is Genesis 6, it's right before Noah's flood, only three chapters removed from when Adam and Eve fall in the garden, the fall of humanity into rebellion and sin against God. And then the Nephilim come on the scene. And I want to give you the context in just a second in which this verse in Genesis 6 appears because there is not even a hint or an insinuation about the celestial or the angelic. In fact, the idea of humanity, that these are human beings, is only reinforced. Look at the, the, listen to the, the, the repetition here. First, the verse we looked at. The Nephilim are men of renown. Verse 5. The wickedness of man was great. Verse 6, God was sorry that he had made man on the earth, or mankind, or humanity. Verse 7, he will blot out men, or humanity, from the earth. Verse 8 and 9, Noah found favor with God and was a righteous man. Genesis 6, in these few verses, only reinforces contextually that this was a unique people group, a unique uh, offspring of humanity. And what seems to be the case from the other terminology, as we've said, is that they were unique in their rebellion against God. And they say, wait a minute, who are the sons of God that interbred with the daughters of men? Uh, Answers in Genesis has a pretty thorough treatment of this passage, and I like the line that they take. They say that the third son of Adam and Eve, remember Cain is killed by his brother Abel, and then he, Adam and Eve give birth to, to uh, Seth. And that the line of Seth includes, if you look in the genealogy, a set of descendants who follow the Lord. Uh, men like Lamech and Enosh and Enoch, Seth himself, and so on and so forth. And they make the case that several of these men 
fall away from the Lord, ultimately uh, disobey him and intermarry with pagan women, and that their offspring become a generation of people who are not only physically large, as we note from the text, but also rebel with God, fall from God's grace at a new level, such that God actually has to intervene in direct judgment through the flood of Noah. That through these people's uh, uh, behavior and sin, as the text in Genesis says, the inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. There is a whole new threshold of level that is hit. That's the second reason. Nephilim means to fall from. Third reason. One of the reasons, or one of the factors of God bringing his people, not the main factor, but one of the factors of bringing Israel into the land of Canaan, into the good land of promise, is also to purge the land, to cleanse the land of gross evil and idolatry. We're talking uh, evil in Canaan that is unspeakable. Child sacrifice, ritual sexual practices and prostitution on a level of vulgarity we cannot imagine. This is what God will bring his people who are redeemed and his own into the land to purge the land of incrementally as they conquer the land in the book of Joshua that we can read about later. Joshua 21 tells us that this is one of the explicit purposes of God. As a matter of fact, if in our speculation here, part of the issue of Israel saying the Anakim are there is that they are heinously evil, their disobedience is even worse because God's purging the land of that sin was supposed to be through Israel. That's the third reason. Fourth reason comes out of the New Testament in Jesus' own words when he appears to the disciples after he's raised from the dead. It's Jesus' resurrectional statement in Luke 24. Remember that Thomas doubted. Jesus appears to them in his glorified body. He says, see my hands and my side. And he says, a spirit does not have flesh and bones. Now Hebrews 13 tells us that angels can actually appear in the form of men. But that does not mean that they contain flesh and bones in the DNA of human beings such that they could intermarry or impregnate and, and breed with human beings. In fact, the full counsel of Scripture would point to the fact that they cannot, that they are a special and unique creation apart from humanity. The, humanity. the pinnacle of God's creative work was mankind, was humanity. And so we have this comprehensive teaching where we're making the case that these Nephilim, the sons of Anak, were not angelic, half-bred superhumans, but in fact were a race of people that were perhaps uniquely strong and perhaps large based on the text, but that they were uh, evil on a level that, that, God, that the earth had not seen yet such that God is going to judge them. So let's see if we can pull all this together. What does that mean for the text? Why do we make the case that hysteria or something along that level? It's as if Israel is saying this. I'll sort of paraphrase for them. God, do you realize who's in there and what these people do and who they are? You couldn't possibly want us to go in there. A, they're going to wipe us out. We look like grasshoppers in their eyes. But they are so corrupt, God can't be right on this. Now, in a New Testament context, on the other side of the cross, there may be a group in our lives where we say, God, you couldn't possibly want me to witness or share the love of Jesus with those people. Do you know what they do? And by the way, he does. In a New Testament context, he sends us with the love of Jesus. In an Old Testament context, he sent his people 
to bring his judgment to bear. They respond with fear, with hyperbole, and with hysteria. What they're really doing is casting judgment on God for his plan. They're calling his good plan bad. We see it in the text, verse 27. This is what the people say. The Lord brought us out of the land of Egypt to hand us over to the Amorites in order to destroy us because he hates us. This is the ultimate looking a gift horse in the mouth. What God has said in verse 8, that enter the good land and take possession of it, that I have promised you to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are saying, not only is it not a good land, but because of all of the things that we fear that are in there and in this grotesque people, it's actually a demonstration of God's hatred. In the New Testament context, it would be like grieving the Holy Spirit of God. And God responds with anger and with an oath that not one of the the spies or that generation, save Caleb and Joshua, will enter the promised land. I think it's fair to say that we kind of hear this from an Old Testament context. We say, I I don't really connect. But what what about in our lives? I'll speak for me only. What level of suffering, what kind of a bad week do I need to have where I start to ask God, God, what's the deal? Do you hate me? You see the connection? We're not so different from God's people here in Israel. So I wonder this morning, the question I've asked myself, what circumstances have caused me to disbelieve the Lord's goodness? Remember our framework of love for a flourishing people. Do I really believe because of my circumstances that God wants me to flourish? Or am I questioning him? And that disbelief leads to disobedience. We've spent the majority of our time here because I think it's important to hear the words of Moses to his people. He brings them there for two reasons. To emphasize the faithfulness of God and to give them a resolve to obey where their parents disobeyed. So he reinforces here the holiness, the faithfulness, the goodness of God in this. He says three things. He says, number one, verse 30, God goes before you. He essentially says, you know this. You know God has gone before you. Remember the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day that God goes before you. He's hedged you in. He's protected you. He's led you. When to go, when to stop. You know this. He says the God who goes before you, he fights for you. Israel, this isn't up to you. God is going to fight these battles for you. We see that throughout the rest of the Old Testament. God is the one who conquers. And finally, He is the one who carries you as a father carries his son. Think of the the poem Footprints. For those of you familiar with it, comes to mind. That God carries us. How does a father carry his son? What is the manner in which God carries us? Remember that God casts himself as a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping, loving redeemer in this book. I remember when my son was first born, uh, we were living in Westerly at the time. We lived right next to Wilcox Park. And as he grew and eventually became a toddler, we would take walks in the park, and later we had another child, and we moved, and we would do hikes at Lantern Hill, and I would often carry my sons. Now they can carry me, by the way. (laughs) But how did I carry them? I carried them gently. I carried them in a protective manner. And quite frankly, I carried them a lot of times with great joy. There was laughter as I held them. We joked and we teased, and there was intimacy. Don't miss that in the text. That Moses inserts as a father carries his son on purpose. He's continually calling them back to God's covenant, faithfulness, and love. And so this morning, where in your story have you seen God go before you? 
Where have you seen him fight for you? How have you known him to carry you in that time when you were absolutely lost? Moses says to his people, but in spite of this, you did not trust the Lord your God. Are there any places in your life, or have they been, where in spite of God's leading and his fighting and his carrying, that you would need to confess today or you have in the past, in spite of that, God, I didn't trust you. He is faithful, even when we miss the opportunities he has before us. And that brings us to our last big point. It's the resolve to obey that Moses is compelling his people toward. In the previous generation, it was basically resolved to disobey. In fact, there are three legacies that come out of Moses recounting this history of those who are standing at the edge of promise. There's first the, the legacy of missed opportunity. What was the legacy of missed opportunity? It was go back the way you came. Go back to the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. You're going to do it all over again because you didn't get it. That's the legacy of missed opportunity. And if that was the end of this passage or the end of our sermon this morning, it would be a downer. And it would also be a works-based message, right? I'm going to have to try harder the next time because I blew it this time. But there are two additional legacies. There's the legacy of the example of Caleb. Caleb, son of Japuna, the text says that he will inherit all the land that he stepped when he spied out the land. Why? Because he remained faithful to the Lord. At a time where his people missed this opportunity, and he's a part of that community, he remained faithful to the Lord. He remained faithful to the Lord despite the pressure of the other ten spies to capitulate, despite the enormous pressure of the community that begins to parrot what the ten spies say, despite the 38 to 40 years that he then continues with his people in their punishment, watching all of his peers and contemporaries die in the wilderness. He remains faithful to the Lord. It may be this morning that there's somewhere in your sphere that there have been missed opportunities, but you have remained faithful to the Lord. You are to be commended. Praise God. And then there's the legacy of the leadership of Joshua. I love the language of Deuteronomy here, that Joshua who attends you. Now, he's talking specifically about Moses. Joshua was Moses' aide. He was his right-hand man. He was basically his armor bearer. He was the one who... uh, uh, followed in the footsteps. He was the understudy of Moses. He will enter the land. And I think there's a little bit of an insinuation here because of the next sentence that Joshua is the one who is also going to lead the people into the land. He will go in before them and he will enable, the word is, them to inherit the land. Remember that Deuteronomy is also a succession narrative. And so Joshua who attends you will ultimately be the one who attends the people, who leads them in and enables them to inherit the promised land. Let's not miss this this morning, that despite the setbacks of their own making, despite the lack of faith of God's people in the previous generation, despite the rejection of God, despite all of it, in our context of our passage today, they're at the edge of promise again. They're back. God has brought them to a new opportunity. Yes, they went in the wilderness. Yes, a generation died. Yes, they circled for 40 days, which should have been, it's almost sarcastic in verse 2, 11 days. But they have been brought back to the land of promise with a new opportunity. And that, brothers and sisters, is hope. And it's ultimately the hope of the gospel. That no matter your missed opportunity to this point in your life, 
that God is not done with you yet. That he has a plan and there is a new opportunity potentially before us. But I think it's more than that. I think in the picture of Caleb and Joshua, we get a composite type or Old Testament picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and his glorious gospel. Who, more than Caleb, remained faithful to the Lord despite adversity. Think of Jesus in the agony of Gethsemane. Think of Jesus in the torture of the cross. Think of Jesus in the rejection of his father. Think of Jesus in the punishment for my sin and yours on him. Remain faithful to the Lord in purchasing our salvation. But it's in Joshua who attends to the people, who goes before the people into the land of promise, and who enables the people that we really see the gospel. You see, it is Jesus who attends to us. 1 John chapter 3 tells us this is how we've come to know the redeeming, covenant-keeping love of God that he laid down his life for us. Jesus manifests, embodies, and fulfills the covenant love of God in going to the cross for undeserving sinners. We are like Israel, outside of the land of promise, incapable on our own of entering in. But Jesus manifests the love of God, laying down his life for you and for me. That is the glorious gospel. To those of you who don't know Jesus yet, it is what we invite you to step into even today. But, oh, Christian, this morning, it doesn't end there. Jesus did not die, go into the grave, raise from the dead, return to heaven, and just sit down at the right hand of the throne of God and do nothing. Hebrews 7 tells us that on our behalf, he makes intercession for us constantly. 1 John chapter 2 tells us that when we blow it, we have an advocate who goes before us to the Father, even Jesus Christ. That Christ's work is a perpetual work, not to re-save us, but to sanctify us, to make us more like his son. He is ever attending unto us out of his great, infinite, and eternal love for us that was first demonstrated in his death on the cross. It is Jesus who attends us. It is Jesus who goes before us. Listen to Luke 24. It says, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? The promised land in the Old Testament is a picture of the glories of eternity, of heaven itself, of the very presence of God. And the New Testament teaches that Jesus, through his death, being the firstborn among the dead, that he proceeds before us into the glories of heaven, into his own glory. Hebrews 6 tells us that he goes before us into the sanctuary, into the Holy of Holies, the place that we could not go, but because of his death, the temple curtain is torn, and we can now go. And that brings us to the third point. He not only goes before us, he not only attends to us, but he... He enables us to enter in as well. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us, For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive, listen to the language, the Old Testament language, the promised eternal inheritance. It's no longer about land, First Peter tells us. It's about eternal life. How has he done that? Now that he has died as a ransom to set us free from the sins committed under the first covenant. What does Jesus do? He attends to us. He goes before us. And praise and glory to God, he enables us to enter the promised land as well. Moses points out his people's failure to highlight God's faithfulness to bring them into the land and to call them to obey. We've been considering this morning this notion of missed opportunities. In Celebrate Recovery, they use the language of hurts, habits, and hang-ups. 
But what we're really talking about is sin. It's our inability to live in the manner that God calls us to live and Jesus stepping in on our behalf. So what are we to do according to Moses and his teaching to his people here with missed opportunities? Well, clearly we learn we're not to deny missed opportunities. We're to recount them. Moses recounts this in detail, putting it before the people. We're also not to justify missed opportunities as the people attempted to do through our fears, our own hyperbole, or even our hysteria about what God does or does not know because we are oh so wise. Because of the gospel and because of Jesus, we are to repent from our missed opportunities and then don't miss this. When we repent that Jesus brings us new opportunities, a new season of the opportunity for blessing, not only for this life, but for eternity. You see, the New Testament's posture is that, and the Old Testament as well, and what we see here is that we recount our missed opportunities, that we would know God's faithfulness, that we would step into relationship with him. In other words, don't stay in your failure. Step into a relationship with God into those new opportunities that he has to you. Listen to how Paul says it in the New Testament, Romans 6. He says, what shall we say then? Should we go on sinning then so that grace may abound or increase? He says, by no means. We are those who have died. Therefore, how can we live in it, meaning our sin, any longer? He goes on in verse 4. He says, just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we may live a new life. The message of Deuteronomy is about missed opportunities leading to new life. About what God is going to do in a new generation that ultimately foreshadows and pictures what Jesus wants to do in you today in 2021. As a non-believer perhaps this morning, a skeptic or someone who's interested, stepping in trust into a relationship with God through what Jesus has done. As a Christian this morning, no longer allowing those missed opportunities in your Christian life to be something that hangs over you, but to be sanctified from it through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's calling us to new life, not missed opportunities. Pray with me this morning. Lord God, we've chewed on some meat of Scripture this morning. Oh, how rich your word is. And God, I thank you that in every page of Scripture, we see the love of your son Jesus here in this type, in this picture of Joshua who attends to his people, who goes before us where we could not go in the cross and who enables us to know eternal life and new opportunities to walk with you, O oh God. Lord, I pray this morning that as we've sort of marinated in this idea of our failures and the areas where we've blown it, maybe it's purity, maybe it's financially, maybe it's witness, maybe it's behavioral, that there wouldn't be any false sense of shame from the evil one this morning, but we'd only consider our failure long enough to see the light of your gospel and your faithfulness and your deep, deep love and abiding grace for us. I pray that because of your word today, people would trust Jesus for the first time. And that we, we would take greater steps of obedience, that we would not be the same when we entered this building this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.